Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book 6, chapter 11, and indeed volume 1. We have finished it. Tony, though, is such a filthy sprat-eating slut, am I right? Thoughts on volume 1, and who, for you, is the main character of volume 1? I thought that'd be an interesting question. I think the answer is obvious for most people that it's probably going to be Tony, but I thought I'd still ask anyway, because it's not... I don't know, it's kind of like she came about being the main character in a strange way, in a way that makes me feel not that, um, not all that kind of secure that she's going to remain the main character. Um, Techrific again coming in with the correct podcast link. Thank you for that, Techrific. Don't know how I keep getting it wrong, but I keep accidentally posting the wrong link. Anywho, <clears throat> Swim said the mum fishy says, this is what my translation says. Go to hell, you filthy so, you slut. A sprat, though, is a herring. So mine, the translation I read called her a sprat-eating slut. So a herring-eating slut? Is that some kind of, maybe, like, dig about her breath or something like that? I don't know. Um, Kutili says, uh, the last two sentences made me chuckle. In Serbian, the translator, it's literally, you filthy carcass. But in the slang usage of the word, it's closer to, you filthy so. Okay, so I think so, meaning pig, right? Female pig. Um... Techrific says, very German. The original is a Bavarian dialect. I said that completely wrong. It's filthy so, or sow slash dreck, in there and gezum, go to, dirfi, hell. We need a native speaker to untangle this dialect, but the essence is clear. Go to hell, you filthy so. And I expect sow, or so, has a double meaning of both a female pig, a so, and also a slut. There you go. What does a dreck mean? Rubbish slash trash. Anyway, he's calling her trash, he's calling her a slut, he's calling her a pig. All that mixed together in one lovely little sentence. <clears throat> you can see why she's upset. Even by today's standards, that's a, that's a pretty good zinger. Techrific says, Tony, for me, is the main character of Volume 1. It began with her as a kid learning her catechism and ends with her second marriage ending. And everything in between revolves around her actions. I wish we could get the inner monologue that Stenthal invented put to good use here. But, sadly, the closest we come to that are the letters, which I've enjoyed because it puts more meat on the bones of the character. All the characters have flaws, some even more fatal than others. Thomas seems to have inherited some of his father's unethical thinking and behaviour. He's a conformist with a little tendency towards the arts, but not enough for him to change the status quo. As Ander pointed out, he's not so good at business as he lets on and preparing to scapegoat his siblings for his own shortcomings. As he is the acting head of the family and the business is the lifeblood of the family, he will be the main source of its downfall. When the money dries up, it is all over. Tony is the most interesting of all the characters, and it's hard to understand her behaviour. I don't see her as a spoiled person, nor does she have the delusions of grandeur like a Christian. 
She's willful and headstrong, restless and above all lost in the world. She has no sense of direction apart from her idea of the family Buddenbrook place in the world. Madame Buddenbrook is just a mere shadow at the end of the book, and all the ancillary characters surrounding the family are mere instruments to use when expedient and when they're useful to the Buddenbrooks. <clears throat> well said, well summed up. Thank you, Tokrifik. Yeah, Madame Buttonbrook is just a shadow, isn't she, by now? She's just... I don't know. She still kind of feels like the backbone of the family a little bit when she is mentioned, but also she just seems quite ineffectual. You don't get a sense of whether she's unhappy with her her lot in life by this point of her life or if she's still a proud person, still active in the community or not. We don't really get much insight into who she is now. But that's just a symptom of reading this book. I feel like there's so much happening on the periphery of these main characters, and we just don't really get any hints about it. Or maybe I'm just missing the hints. That could be it as well. Anywho, chapter one of part seven goes like this, also volume two, I guess, chapter one of volume two, a christening, a christening in Broad Street, all evening is there that was dreamed of, sorry, all, everything is there that was dreamed of by Madame Permanida in the days of her expectancy, in the dining room, the maid servant moving noiselessly so as not to disturb the services in the next room, is filling the cups with steaming hot chocolate and whipped cream, there are quantities of cups crowded together, on the great round tray with the gilded shell-shaped handles, and Anton the butler is cutting a towering lava cake into slices, and Mademoiselle Jungman is arranging flowers and sweets in silver dessert dishes, dessert dishes, with her head on one side and both little fingers stuck out. <clears throat> Soon the company will have seated themselves in the salon and sitting room, and all these delicacies will be handed around. It is to be hoped they will be hold out, since it is the whole family which has gathered here in the broader, if not quite in the broadest sense of the word, for it is through the Overdiacs connected distantly with the Kisten markers, and through them with the Mellendorfs, and so on. One simply must draw the line somewhere, but the Overdiacs are represented, and indeed by no lesser personage than the head of the family, the venerable Dr. Kaspar Overdiac, reigning burgomaster, more than eighty years old. He came in a carriage and mounted the steps, leaning on the staff and Thomas Buddenbrook's arm. His presence enhances the dignity of the occasion, and beyond a question, this occasion is worthy of every dignity. For within, in the salon, there is a flower-decked small table serving as an altar, with a young priest in a black vest, in black vestments, sorry, and a stiff snowy ruff like a millstone around his neck, reciting the service and there is a great strapping particularly well-nourished person richly arrayed in red and gold bearing upon her billowing arms a small something half smothered in laces and satin bows and air a first-born son a buddenbrook do we really grasp the meaning of the fact can we realize the thrill of that first whisper that first little hint that traveled from broad street to Mengstrasse, or frau permitted a speechless ecstasy as she embraced her mother and her brother and very gently her sister-in-law and now with the spring, the spring of the year 1861, he has come. He, the heir of so many hopes, of whom they have expected for so many years, talked of him, longed for him, prayed to God, and tormented Dr. Grabau for him at length, 
He has come. He looks most unimposing. His tiny hands play among the gilt trimmings of his nurse's waist. His head, in a lace cap trimmed with pale blue ribbons, lies sideways on the pillow, turned heedlessly away from the preacher. He stares out into the room at all his relatives with an old knowing look. Those eyes under their long-lashed lids blend the light blue of the father's and the brown of the mother's iris into a pale, indefinite, changeful golden brown. But bluish shadows lie in the deep corners on both sides of the nose. And these give the little face, which is hardly yet a face at all, an aged look not suited to its four weeks of existence. But please God, they mean nothing, for has not his mother the same, and she is in perfect good health. And anyhow, he lives, he lives, and is a son which was the cause four weeks ago for great rejoicing. He lives, and it might have been otherwise. The consul will never forget the grip of good Dr. Grabel's hand, as he said to him four weeks ago when he could leave the mother and child, give thanks to God. My dear friend, there wasn't much to spare. The consul has not dared to ask his meaning. He put from him in horror the thought that his... Son, this tiny creature, yearned for in vain so many years, had slipped into the world without breath to cry out almost, almost like Antony's second daughter. But he knows that that hour, four weeks ago, was a desperate one for mother and child, and he bends tenderly over Gerda, who reclines in an easy chair in front of him, next to his mother, her feet, in patent leather shoes, crossed before her on a velvet cushion. How pale she still is! and how strangely lovely in her pallor, with that heavy dark red hair and those mysterious eyes that rest upon the preacher in half-veiled mockery, her, Andreas, Pringsheim, Pastor Marinas, succeeded thus young to the headship of St. Mary's other, after old Collinger's sudden death. He holds his chin in the air, and his hands prayfully folded beneath it, he was short, curly blonde hair, has short, curly blonde hair, and a smooth-shaven, bony face with a somewhat theatrical range of expression, from fanatical zeal to an exalted serenity. He comes from Franconia, where he has been for some years, serving a small Lutheran community among Catholics, and his effort after a clear and moving delivery has resulted in exaggerated mannerisms, an R rolled upon his front teeth and long, obscure and crudely accented vowel sounds. He gives thanks to God, in a voice now low and soft, now loud and swelling, and the family listen. Frau Promenader, clothed in a dignity that hides her pride and her delight, Erica Grunlich, now almost fifteen years old, a blooming young girl with a long braid and her father's rosy skin, and Christian, who has arrived that morning and sits letting his deep-set eyes rove from side to side all over the room. Pastor Tiberius and his wife have not shrunk from the long journey, but have come from Riga to the present in the ceremony that ends of Sivert Tiberius' long, thin whiskers are parted over his shoulders and his small grey eyes now and then open wider and wider, most unexpectedly they and grow larger and more prominent till they almost jump out of his head. Clara's gaze is dark and solemn and severe, and she sometimes lifts her hand to a head that always seems to ache, but they have brought a splendid present to the Buddenbrooks, a huge brown bear stuffed in a standing position, a relative of the pastor's shot him somewhere in the heart of Russia, and now he stands below in the vestibule, and a card tray between his paws, 
The Krogers have their son, Jürgen, visiting them. He is a post office official in Rostock, a quiet, simply dressed man. Where Jacob is, nobody knows but his mother, who was an overdeak. She, poor, weak woman, secretly sells the household silver to send money to the disinherited son, and the ladies Buddenbrook are there, deeply rejoiced over the happy family event, which does not prevent Fifi from remarking that the child looks rather unhealthy, a view which the Frau Consul born stewing, and likewise Friedrich and Henriette feel bound to endorse. But poor Clothilde, lean, grey, resigned and hungry, is moved by the words of Pastor Pringheim, Prings, Pringsham, and the prospect of layer cake and chocolate. The guests not belonging to the family are her, Friedrich, Wilhelm, Marcus, and Sesame Wichprot. Um, now the pastor turns to the godparents and instructs them in their duty. Justus Kruger is one. Consul Buddenbrook refused at first to ask him why invite the old man to commit a piece of folly. He says he has frightful scenes with his wife every day over Jacob. Their little property is slowly melting away out of pure worry. He is even beginning to be careless in his dress. But you know what will happen. If we ask him, he will send the child a heavy gold service and refuse to be thanked for it. But when Uncle Justice heard who was to be asked in his place, Stefan Kistenmarker had been mentioned, he was so enormously piqued that they had to ask him after all. The gold mug he presented was, to Thomas's great relief, not exaggeratedly heavy. And the second godfather? It is this dignified old gentleman with the snow-white hair, high neckband and soft black broadcloth coat with the red handkerchief sticking out of the back pocket, sitting here bent over his stick in the most comfortable armchair in the house. It is, of course, Burgomaster Dr. Overdiak. It is a great event, a triumph. Good heavens, how could it have come about? He's hardly even a relative. The Buddenbrooks must have dragged the old man in by the hair. In fact, it is rather a fate. A little intrigue planned by the consul and Madame Permanida. At first, it was merely a joke, born of the great relief of knowing that mother and child were safe. A boy, Tony, cried the consul. He ought to have the burgomaster for godfather. But she took it up in earnest, whereupon he considered the matter seriously and agreed to make a trial. This uh, they hid behind Uncle Justice and got him to send his wife to her sister-in-law, the wife of Overdiek, the lumber dealer. She accepted the task of preparing the old father-in-law. Then Thomas Buddenbrook made a visit to the head of the state and paid his respects, and the thing was done. Now the nurse lifts up the child's cap, and the pastor cautiously sprinkles two or three drops out of the gilt-lined silver basin in front of him, upon the few hairs of the little Buddenbrook, as he slowly and impressively names the names with which he is baptizing him. Justice Johann Kasper follows a short prayer, and then the relatives file by the bes- to bestow a kiss upon the brow of the unconcerned little creature. Therese Wichbrot comes last, to whom the nurse has to stoop with her burden, in return for which Sesame gives him two kisses that go off with small explosions and says between them, you good child. Three minutes later, the guests have disposed themselves in salon and living room and the suites are passed, even past a pringsheim. The toes of his broad, shiny boots showing under his black vestment sits and sips the cool whipped cream of his hot chocolate. 
chatting easily the while and wearing his serene expression, which is most effectively by most effective by way of contrast with his sermon. His manner says as plainly as words, See how I can lay aside the priest and become the jolly, ordinary guest. He's a versatile and accommodating sort of man. To the Frau Consul he speaks rather unctuously, to Thomas and Goethe like a man of the world, and with Frau Permanida he is downright jocose, making jokes and gestures fluently. Now and then, whenever he thinks of it, he folds his hands in his laps, lap, tips back his head, glooms his brows and makes a long face. When he laughs, he draws the air in through his teeth in little jerks. Suddenly there is a stir in the corridor, the servants are heard laughing, and in the doorway appears a singular figure come to offer congratulations. It is Grobleben, Grobleben, from whose thin nose, no matter what the time of year, there ever hangs a drop, which never falls, of course. Grobleben is a workman in one of the console's granaries and has an extra job, too, at the house as boots. Every morning early, he appears in Broad Street, takes the boots from before the door and cleans them below the court, in the court. At family feasts, he always appears in holiday attire, presents flowers and makes a speech in a whining, unctuous voice, with the drop pendant from his nose. For this, he always gets a piece of money, but that is not why he does it. He wears a black cloak, coat, an old one of the consoles, greased leather boot top boots, and a blue woolen scarf round his neck. In his wizened red hand he holds a bunch of pale-coloured roses which are a little past their best and slowly shed their petals on the carpet. He blinks with his small red eyes, but apparently sees nothing. He stands still in the doorway with his flowers held out in front of him and begins straight away to speak. The old Frau Consul nods to him encouragingly and makes soothing little noises. The Consul regards him with one eyebrow lifted, and some of the family, Frau Permanida for instance, put their handkerchiefs to their mouths. I be a poor man, Your Honour, and ladies and gentlemen, but I've a feeling hair and the happiness of my master comes home to me, it do, seeing he's always been so good to me and... So I've come, Your Honour, and ladies and gentlemen, to congratulate the Err Consul and the Frau Consul and the whole respected family from the full heart that the child may prosper for that they deserve from God and man for such a master as Consul Buddenbrook there aren't so many. He's a noble gentleman, and our Lord will reward him for all. Splendid, Grobleben. That was a beautiful speech. Thank you very much, Grobleben. What are the roses for? But Grobleben has not merely done. He strains, has not nearly done. He strains his whining voice and drowns the console out. And I saith the Lord will reward him, him and the whole respected family. And when this time has come to stand before his throne, for stand we all must, rich and poor, and all one'll have a fine polished hardwood coffin and t'other an old box. Yet all on us must come the Mother Earth at the last. Yes, we must all come to her at the last, to Mother Earth, to Mother. Oh, come, come, Grobleben. This isn't a funeral, it's a christening. Get along with your Mother Earth. And these be a few flowers, concludes Grobleben. Thank you, Grobleben, thank you. This is too much. What did you pay for them, man? But I haven't heard such a speech as that for a long time. Wait a minute. Here go out and give yourself a treat in honour of the day, and 
The consul puts his hand on the old man's shoulder and gives him a thaler. Here, my good man, says the Frau, Frau Consul, and I hope you love our blessed Lord. I be loving him from my heart, Frau Consul. That's the holy truth. And Grobleman gets another thaler from her, and a third from Frau Permanida, and retires with a bow and a syrup and a scrape, taking the rose with him by mistake, except for those already fallen on the carpet. The burgomaster takes his leave now, and the consul accompanies him down to the carriage. This is the signal for the party to break up, and Gerda Buddenbrook must rest. The old Frau Consul, Tony, Erica, and Mamsel Jungmann are the last to go. Well, Ida, says the consul, I have been thinking it over. You took care of us all, and when little Gohan went, gets a bit older, he still has the monthly nurse now, and after that, he will still need a day nurse, I suppose, but will you be willing to move over to us when the time comes? Yes, indeed, her consul, if your wife is satisfied. Gerda is content to have it so, and thus it is settled. In the act of leaving, however, and already at the door for our permanent turns, she comes back to her brother and kisses him on both cheeks and says, It's been a lovely day, Tom. I am happier than I have been for years. We Buttonbrooks aren't quite at the last gasp yet, thank God, and whoever thinks we are in is mightily mistaken. Now that we have little Johan, it is so beautiful that he is christened Johan, it, it looks to me as if quite a new day will dawn for us all. Alright, there we go, there's another chapter for you. A strange one. We've skipped a little bit ahead, I'm not sure how far, but... Um, Cool. Chat about it in the comments and I'll see you tomorrow.